This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that loves being in the studio on a virtual Sunday morning. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, on this wonderful weekend, Dr. Nirvan Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you? Good day, Captain. I, you're lying, right? We're not in a studio today. No, that's true. Do you reckon people are sick of me pretending? I mean, we always say we're we'll doing well, it. Today, do it. we're not even in a studio. Today, it's not bright and sunny. We're in the Southern Highlands office. Yeah. My place. <laughs> <laughs> we are in that studio. Yes, exactly. You, you live in southwest Sydney, and I live even further south and even further west in the beautiful New South Wales, Southern Highlands. And we thought we'd record from my place today. And that's kind of fun. I'll take you out for lunch a bit later. So that's not a bad thing, right? No, that, that sounds like a great deal to me. But you want to get through this podcast so we can go and have lunch, don't you? That's true. All right, let's do it. That's true. So, mate, we have got a very special and not overly unusual, but, but still, we like to think it's special, mailbag edition of Motley Full Money. Should we just kick it right off? Yeah, let's not do a tangent. <laughs> Speaking of which, no, I'm kidding. All right. <laughs> uh, just, just because that would be just painful for people listening. Although we did have a couple of people who commented and said they love the tangents. So I think they just need help. Is my, my So this opinion. is a tangent about a tangent. Oh, I like it. Does that make it not a tangent then? Or is it like a double tangent? Like which way does it go? Does it just one cancel the other out? Or is it like uh, a double well, tangent? How about we let uh, our listeners decide and then they can get back to you on Twitter. <laughs> there you go. With the answer. Hit us up, hit us up on Twitter, at TMF Scott P, at Anirban Mahati, with hashtag tangent or hashtag not tangent. We'll count them up. They'll probably be round off to exactly zero, but if you want to. <laughs> was that a tangent or was it not? Let us know. Hashtag tangent, hashtag not a tangent. All right. First question is from Adrian. Mate. Adrian says, hey, Scott and Doc, just asking my question on the Insta. Hey, hey, love an Insta question. Since I did an experiment and noticed Insta is better than Twitter. Interesting. Doc, you won't like that, will you? I don't like it. But <laughs> being, yeah, mind- <laughs> being mindful of the quote, markets can continue to be irrational Longer than you can be solvent, which I love as a quote, by the way. Are you more or less likely to buy or sell based on valuation grounds for a long-term investor? So I love this question, mate, because I think, I mean, you and I are different investors, are different enough anyway that it'll be an interesting conversation. But the idea of valuation, whether you buy or sell based on valuation or how important that is, is a really fundamental point. It's a fundamental part of investing. It's a fundamental question a whole lot of people have. And it's also a pretty fundamental way that people tend to differ as investors. So let me ask you, I mean, buying is kind of a different question. I feel free to answer both, but I'm, I'm probably keener to ask you, how do you consider how valuation comes into your sell thesis? How, you know, do you use valuation to work out when to sell? How do you think about valuation once you already own the stock? Yeah, so that's a really, really um, uh, great question. Go on, hi. Yeah, it's, yeah, Adrian, that's a, it's a fantastic question. It's actually a really hard question. <laughs> um, <laughs> And That's I, why I asked you, mate. You yeah, know. So, so, so I get to stumble first. Uh, I, I see here the. And then what I do is so I, I repeat the stuff you've already said that made sense. I come off sounding smart. It's everyone's happy. It's it's, it's, it's yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great conspiracy. Here. Um, so selling is really hard. Uh, my usual stuff. So I'm not a value investor, and neither is Scott. Actually, Scott's not a value investor mm. either. In in in, in, in not in the true deep value yeah, sense, right? Yeah. Um, so we we generally don't like. Oh, I'm not going to try to answer for Scott. But I generally don't buy like a turnaround, for example, uh, where I'm hoping that, you know, uh, the sum of parts is going to work out, for example. And, you know, the market is all of a sudden going to realize how much this is worth and then I'll sell it. I don't buy that type of stuff. I buy basically uh, what I I like to think of them as secular growth companies. They've got some tailwinds of growth. They've got long runways for growth. They have big opportunities. They're inventing new markets. And those are the type of stocks I buy. So when I buy those stocks, what happens is... 
selling really does not come into the play um, in if things are working out for for a while. And when I say while, it's usually five plus years that I'm thinking okay. I don't have to really worry about selling. Now, maybe in a if now there's a flip side. If the thesis is not working out, as we have sold, for example, in extreme opportunities, uh, we've sold a few companies where basically the thesis was growth, and the, and then it turned into well, this is now a turnaround story. <laughs> well. Yeah, we don't want to own those things. Yeah. Like really, I mean, you can if you think really this is a value, but again, it becomes value judgment, and we don't want to own those things, so we sell them because our original thesis is literally now completely broken. Um, yeah. You could still ask the question: Is it you know? And and we try to give people rope uh, in the sense that you know, um, often when the thesis starts breaking, the market corrects, and the market corrects, and therefore it looks like value. Mm. All of those things happen, uh, but we give them rope to see if they can get back to sort of the thesis that originally was. So if there's growth as the thesis, then now say a decade out, the question would be, um, is it still the same story? Is it still, and I say story, I don't mean it as a story stock, but is it is it still traveling along that path? Mm. Um, if it is, then you know, valuation again is not a big component um, of, of, my, of my thinking. Yeah. Um, does that mean that I would keep a stock at any price? Probably not. But you know, my my general feeling is, and this is really a hunch, is market is really poor at um, at taking into account how disruptive growth is and how much exponential the growth can be. And mm. it really has a hard time assigning high growth rates to future years. The market has a tendency of saying five percent, four percent you know, terminal value that is year 10 onwards and a hyper growth company mm. can actually deliver 20, 30, even 40% growth for many years. There are many, many companies that have done that and those therefore on any sort of discounted cash flow type of valuation would have looked significantly overvalued, but they were actually not overvalued if you if you actually use the correct metrics. So, can I, can so I throw your hypothesis, mate? Sorry to interrupt you. It, it strikes me, and I've not really thought about this. You and I have been working together for a long time. It just occurred to me now that I would just based on what you've said, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and summarize what I think you said or, or restate in a different way. I reckon what I think you just said was it almost never happens that a, a, a disruptive growth company you own is ever going to be valued appropriately by the market anywhere in its early years. So the the the, the other selling on valuation is almost moot because the market's never gonna overvalue those companies. Almost, you know, as long as the thesis remains intact. It, it's almost never going to happen. The market overvalues it almost by definition. Yeah, like that's the way I think about it. Like almost the more disruptive a company is, the the more likely it is that it's actually cheap. That's really fascinating. Yeah, so that's the way I yeah, look yeah. at it. And, yep. and, and I, therefore, I don't worry about valuation for disruptive growth companies. The companies that actually get it done, they're typically always cheap and they're always cheap for a long time and and pretty much you could buy that does not necessarily mean see I'm I'm just dis, I'm distinguishing between volatility that does not mean that yes, I can yes. buy at any price <laughs> and then hope that it's yeah. going to go up the next yeah. day yeah. the stock price could fall by 50% but I'm almost certain of many of the companies that I would hold that these companies are by definition cheap yeah, if my right. thesis works out yeah uh, and and they are cheap, and they will remain cheap for some time. So pretty much, I can you know add whenever I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the way, way I think about them. Um, if you want a little, little bit more exposition, I guess the one company that a disruptive growth company that I sold recently was Netflix. Okay. And and I sold it on the back of all uh, pretty much any media company. Um, now 
mm. launching its own streaming service. So, mm. you know, mm. so for example, D- Disney did launch a streaming service, Apple launched a streaming service. And what that made me f- think was now that, you know, this is not Netflix back 10 years ago, right? This is Netflix today, which has got 160 million subscribers. Now, right. if you think about the world as a whole, and you say, well, the world has got about, let's say, you know, 8 million people in it, and let's say, you know, 1 billion of them are supposed to have streaming, uh, streaming services, then they've still only scratched, a little, you know, 10% right, or right. 15% yeah, out yeah. Of, the, of the population. And and therefore, there's a lot more runway. But, you know, the, the, the fact that it, it, there's a lot more competition me, to mm. me means that I would think that this thing now should start get start see valuation happening more traditional ways mm. and and you know but so far I would, I would also point this out so far i'm actually wrong <laughs> the, um, uh, uh, the stock has gone up significantly since i sold so um As I said to you, yeah, yeah no, I, I think you've, you've put you put that money into other other better ideas fair to say so you might you may have been possibly you know you may have some opportunity cost on the table you certainly use that money well let me put it that way yeah, yeah it, that could be but i mean i'm again i mean it's, and the reason i'm bringing this up is yeah. is it's as an, it's an example where if the disruptive growth still holds then maybe i actually sold out too early yeah, right? right um but 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 pretty much for any and many of the companies that we look at for example mm-hmm. in extreme which there's even smaller really small companies if things work out these will be big companies really big companies if things don't work out then they won't be big companies right but um, yeah, for the thesis working out part, I think you know you could think that you know the price yeah. today's price is fine. I like that a lot, man. I, I've never thought about it exactly that way. That's I just I feel like a, a light bulb's gone off. So I've learned something today. It's been worth us doing the podcast for that alone. Um, I'm going to add just quickly, Adrian, just from my own thoughts. Um, I, I don't I don't I don't buy the same sorts of companies a lot that Doc does. And to his point. Um, I'm not a value investor. I do have a, I'm a reform value investor. Um, and so I do occasionally relapse. I did buy shares in retail food groups. I think I said last week, the week before, um, on the basis that it just seemed too cheap to ignore. And so far I've been wrong because it's, it's fallen. So maybe I'm destined to continue to make the same mistakes. Uh, maybe maybe trying to buy um, turnarounds is a bad idea. I, th- for me, look, I, I have, but to Doc's point, I, and I, I am a reformed value investor or a reformed deep value investor. I've come a long way from that point. I still will include valuation as a consideration, but I'm far more likely if I've got the buy idea right in the first place, I'm far, far less likely to sell on slight overvaluation and even overvaluation. I, the, the phrase I tend to use internally and with our members is significantly overvalued. I mean, if something's just obviously overvalued, if I don't Woolworths at 40 bucks, I couldn't have kept it just, it, it, there was no there was no reasonable basis for retaining Woolies um, at that sort of price, right? There, there are prices that, particularly for lower growth companies, and again, this is where Doc and I differ a little bit. Um, I, I happen to invest in growth. I tend not to invest in disruptive growth the same way. And so for that reason, I have to take, pay a little more attention to, to valuation because I don't have the same raw upside that Doc's got. Um, so I will I will self valuation, but only if it's significantly overvalued. I try and give our companies more than enough room to run, um, and if I do that well enough, I think that to me is the uh, is, is the best way to use valuation. Is use it as a guide for buying and selling, but the quality and the role, the the unfolding of the thesis far far more important. If you've got a quality business with a quality management team, kind of let them do their thing, right? Wait wait for them to prove to you. You don't you should know the shares rather than trying to get out too early. Famously, I think it was last week even we said. We were asked about our, our worst mistakes and um, I think your question probably came in before that. But in any case, it, it, for me, it was on, on our members' behalf, was selling Domino's at 13 bucks after it doubled, feeling like I was a genius and then have the shares go to 70 bucks. So, you know, you know, valuation-wise, it looked expensive. Oh, I've got, I made some money, great. 
um, selling was a mistake. And if I if I'd kept everything I'd sold, uh, we'd be better off than if I you know not sold stuff I stuff I held stuff that went down. Um, you're almost always better off holding both groups because even if you make some losses on company one, the gains you make on company two or company three will well and truly offset it and and more on top of that. Anything more, mate? No, I have nothing to add. Question from Maxi. Maxi says, G'day, Scott and Doc. I love the pod. Good man. A question mainly for Scott, but would like the Doc's input as well. I've recently signed up for Motley Fool Everlasting Income. Love the service. Was curious to know, as I'm using my SMSF, with the income I receive, should I reinvest into more stocks or keep it in cash? General advice, of course. Any help would be extremely appreciated. I think I may have said this to you too, but you should have an ETF, a Scott and Doc's ETF. Also, a shout out and thank you to all your team in the background. All the best. Full on. Uh, thank you, Maxie. As I, as I like to say whenever I get the opportunity, um, if we're doing a good job, it's probably someone else's uh, good work. And if we're screwing it up, it's probably my fault. So uh, I will echo those thoughts to all of our fellow fools, uh, both here and in the US. Thank you for everything you do to help us do what we do to help our members and our listeners do what they do. So a, a big shout out internally. Maxie, I'll grab your jump on your bandwagon, mate, and I'll take it a little bit further. Thank you for that. All right, Doc, the question is about everlasting income. Now, this is a product that we have internally. It's available to our members. And the idea is we take a portfolio and we turn it into a regular monthly paycheck uh, by thus far, and we hope to always be the case, only using the dividends by being able to pick good stocks, build a good portfolio, use the income flow from that portfolio and dividends to smooth out the ups and downs of, you know, you get paid dividends twice, sometimes four times a year, mostly twice a year. So we, we, we take that cash, we leave it a little bit in cash and give it out as income. Now, Maxie's asking in this case how to, whether you should reinvest the cash. Now, it sounds like Maxie's probably either not retired or doesn't need the money yet. So everlasting income is designed for those who are using the cash. And he's saying, well, if I'm getting cash paid out in those dividends, which he is, what should he do with the money? I'll have, I'll have a go first up and then you can throw your thoughts on top of that if you've got any. Um, actually, the, the idea of the service is, is to give people who, are in, who need that income effectively a monthly income. So that, you know, it's designed to be taken out and spent. If you're not spending it for whatever reason, either because you're still working or you don't need all the cash or something else, um, generally speaking, mate, I would be using that to, act, to accumulate more shares because the, the, the portfolio itself as, as, uh, as designed has enough cash to pay out to, to cover our income needs, assuming that members take the money out and spend it. In other words, if you're in that cash add up, you've got more cash than the average member or than the portfolio itself that you're following. And there's no harm in cash, I mean, it's fine. But as we said on Friday, um, you know, you're not getting that much in your cash, you should be leaving it in cash unless you desperately need the money or unless you want to use it as a buffer to your income needs. So on the basis that I think, based on what you're saying, you don't need the money, I would absolutely be reinvesting it. I think, um, you know, over the long term, as long as you have a long term time horizon, every investor should. If you're investing for three plus years, ideally five plus years, um, any extra money in my book should go straight into the market as long as you met your other needs and you're not leaving yourself too exposed to downturns or job losses, stuff like that. Have a rainy day account. Um, all that being said and all that being covered, I absolutely think that using it as a um, as an opportunity to reinvest that cash to actually build the future income is exactly what I'd do. Doc, do you have any thoughts? No, like, you know, this is a service that you run with uh, Ed Wesley and Chris Copley, so Correct. I have nothing to um, add. Yeah, and you answered it all. Thank you, man. What about our Scott and Doc ETF? What do you reckon? I love the idea. Are, are we going to get paid for it? <laughs> you know what? I'm not sure we'd be getting extra for it, unfortunately. But yeah, we could we could do something. Yeah, if we get paid like we'll some, the boss. You know, uh, if we get two, 200 basis points, we get paid for it, then, <laughs> then I think I'm in. Would the ETF have more than just, just our usual favorite stocks? Yeah, sure. 
Yeah. We'll have lots of stocks. Oh, okay. All right. I wondered about that. I thought we might end up with uh, two or four stocks. No, like that. no, no. We'll have lots of stocks. <laughs> we'll make it a very diversified, nice, beautiful, wonderful ETF. How do we do it? We have half each, do you reckon? Or would we use some sort of combined? Uh, I'll take 70%. <laughs> I see. Very, very generous of you. I mean, I meant of the, I meant of the stock selection, not of the Yeah, cash. I'll take 70% oh, of the too. stocks okay. and I'll take okay. 70% of the basis points. <laughs> Remind me why I'm doing this? You still get 30%. What's the problem? You, yeah, get you get 70. something is better than nothing. I'll give you the okay, fine, say, uh, fine, 60 40. <laughs> my way? I know my way. Let's move on. <laughs> Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. Next question comes from Liam. Um, I, after you've just tried to just rob me. Um, I'm, I'm still sure I feel about that. Anyway, Liam says, I was just listening to your earnings podcast and you touched on Webjet. Why would a company with growth like theirs be paying a small 2% dividend rather than reinvesting back into the company? And he says, I do hold Webjet shares courtesy of Doc's EO recommendation. Thanks again. Thanks, Liam. Good. Uh, appreciate the, the, the kind thoughts. Um, Doc, it's a really, I, I love this question. So I'm going to get you to, to answer it two ways for me. I'm going to get you to explain what they should do, but also give us a sense of why they don't do what you think they should do. So a company like Webjet, um, they're growing like, gangbusters and Liam's saying well if they've got so much growth ahead of them why would they be paying a dividend why not just taking all of as much cash as they can possibly get and plowing it back into growth uh, Liam made this a fantastic question and uh, while the recommendation looked great <laughs> for some time it currently doesn't look that great uh, <laughs> because of coronavirus um, again we've rated as buy I'd, I'd say if you hold the shares keep holding it um, if you want to add to it you know maybe add a little bit but I wouldn't you know I wouldn't go um, all in. Uh, actually, I'd say that you shouldn't go all in in any stock. It's not the back the truck type yeah. of scenario. Um, with respect, to, see, this is a very. Uh, I think the idea that a company that's profitable should pay a dividend is a very Australian thing. Mm. Uh, it's actually specific to some other markets as well. Um, Australian investors, as a whole, have as a group. So yep. as a large group have a preference towards dividends large because also because of the franking credit system we have got here which is unique uh, to Australia um, this is if if Webjet was a company listed uh, in the US market for example and it had the kind of growth and it was showing this kind of growth it would not be paying a dividend would be my guess okay right and what they would be doing is they would be actually reinvesting the entire thing right. uh, entire amount of earnings basically that they are you know retaining retained earnings for growth and and that works in a way you know what happens currently is that if webjet for example wants to make an acquisition uh, it wouldn't have retained earnings what it would actually do is it'll come back to the market and say, give us more money. Uh, <laughs> if it was not doing uh, paying dividends, maybe it would have enough enough money right, and right. say, you know, I'll just use that to make an action. So it's a little bit of a give and take. Um, mm. uh, yeah, so I am actually not in favor of uh, high growth companies paying dividends, uh, but they do. Unless uh, they actually don't need the money. Like, unless they have literally no use for the cash. Yeah, they, if they, they, have literally, they couldn't possibly use it even if they left it with them. Yeah. In, in, yeah. in, that, in that case, yes. But if, if a company is a company that's going to come back to the market and say, I need more money from you, <laughs> then it is entirely stupid, actually, yes. in my view, yes. for them to be paying dividends. You know, like, you know, you pay a dividend, then you come back, you know, <laughs> hey, give me some more money now. Yeah. Uh, it's really ridiculous, and that really should not be happening. The it's, banks it's, have been doing that for years. Yeah, too. banks are doing that for years. You know, say, they pay you dividend on one hand, then they say, hey, 
Hey, <laughs> we need to, you know, strengthen our capital? balance yeah, sheet yeah, yeah. to meet the Basel three standards or whatever it is uh-huh, right now. Uh-huh. So, you know, and it's not your banks, a, a bunch of companies, they're all culprits of the same, you know, it's almost like a disease and I would rather see the disease being eliminated. Um, right. uh, w- yeah. So Webjet, I think, should not be paying a dividend given the type of growth it has. It, it makes acquisitions, though, in spurts. So it's like, you know, it's not yeah. making an acquisition every month. So, I mean, you know, it's hard to know what's there in their pipeline and things like that. But yeah, uh, by and large, I agree with what you're saying, Liam. Uh, and it's a great observation. Yeah, I think that's... Um I think that's right. Like I, I, so there's that. I, I will. I only for the balance, and, and I kind of get the merit of some of it. So there are reasons why dividend lovers love their dividends and want companies to pay them. The first is that a company that's not um, a company that has too much cash in the balance sheet can be tempted to do stuff that otherwise it might be a good idea to do. So that they're kind of burning the hole in the pocket problem that a lot of companies have. And we'd like to believe that our, our managers and our CEOs are. Uh, a very, very hyper-rational, thoughtful, slow-acting um, capital allocators with all of these great skills, right? The, those who like dividends say, well, hang on, at least if you give me the money, you can't go and waste it. We saw BHP about, I want to say it was 12 months ago now, mate, might have been 18 months ago, um, Elliot Capital Management was the name of the company from me, an activist investor pretty much said to BHP, hey, give us a special dividend. You guys have got such a crappy track record of acquisitions. We actually want the cash so you don't waste it. Um, and so that, that, was a, that was a pretty overt um, you know, a description. Uh, but that aside, even even putting that to, to one side for, for a little, at least a little bit of time, um, there is a real sense that, you know, companies that have the cash will could potentially waste it and they're better off the shares of shareholders because if they have a capital raising, shareholders can always say no. They don't want to put money back if they don't believe in what the company is looking to do with the new cash. So that's one. Second, as you already mentioned, is franking credits. And so at, at a total return level, a dollar of capital gains is not the same as a dollar of dividends. Um particularly in the given year. Now, if you can compound those for periods of time, then it changes the game meaningfully. But if you can get a, a dollar of capital gains today, you've got to pay tax on that capital gain at your marginal rate. Uh, super is a little bit different. There's a whole lot of differences there. If it's a dividend, uh, then, you know, in other words, you don't reinvest it for growth, but you give it to the shareholders. Not only sometimes do they not pay as high tax, they can actually get money back. So a dollar a dollar of dividends is worth a dollar twenty for some people. Um, a dollar of capital gains can be worth somewhere between eighty and sixty cents for other people. And so there are some some times, some places where dividends make a little bit more sense than they otherwise might. And it does to some degree put some discipline around the capital allocation of a company. Now, for all of that said, I actually completely agree with you, Doc, in terms of a great company should be given the opportunity, should take the opportunity to keep the cash and actually use it for growth because we actually want to invest in companies that are going to be able to take their businesses to higher and higher levels unless you're investing only for income. Back to the everlasting income question we asked, uh, answered earlier. Um, you kind of want, you don't really care how it comes. You just want the maximum total shareholder return and a good business with good prospects, particularly growth prospects, should in theory be better off keeping that cash and using it for good things. Any more on that, man? No, sir. Beautiful question from Craig this time. He says, hi, Scott. I like this question just because it's kind of fun and really different, mate. He says, um, hi, Scott. Love the podcast. I also enjoy the Motley Fool US podcasts. Occasionally, while listening to the US podcast, I have an Aussie investor abroad doing guest appearance by the name of Scott Phillips. I think he means me. I think you do a great job. Thank you, mate. Talking Aussie stocks and Aussie wine regions. I did. Last time I was there, I did talk about treasury wine estates. Um, question for the podcast. When you were talking with your international fool colleagues, what are their perceptions or misperceptions of our Aussie market? And is there any Aussie companies you think you sh- think should be on the radar for international investors? So I just I just love this because we're a really really different way of looking at the market than we normally do, mate. We know what we know. We, we we kind of have experience with what we have experience with. 
asking the question which Craig does of what do others get right or wrong about Australia is a really interesting way to kind of reframe the question. So again, mate, because a really good one and a difficult one to answer, I'm going to ask you to go first. Um, you, you also speak to a lot of our US colleagues um, regularly. You're a, you're a US investor, so you're in kind of both worlds. What is it that you see uh, US investors in particular or other international investors, if you have other experiences from other parts of the world, are getting right and wrong? What are their perceptions and misperceptions of Aussie companies, of the Aussie market, of the economy, um, of investing over here? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, the thing is that most investors tend to focus a lot essentially on their own market, right? And it's it's an interesting thing because, um, I mean, a stock is a stock and it's, it's you know, given in today's computer age, everything is tradable everywhere. Um, so you should basically look at the stock market as the entire stock market of the world. What can you buy, right? But I don't think anybody does that. Even even at, you know, because of... Yeah. Because of uh, so, but in terms of... So the one thing I would say is that, you know, I don't think people... Um, again, because of our colleagues, they work on uh, U.S. products, so they're not actively thinking about Australian stocks. Mm. Uh, we have one U.S. service which looks at, uh, which is basically a global focus service which looks at Australian stocks. So um, I would say that not many people are thinking about um, Australian stocks in general. Right. Um, when people think about Australian companies, I guess they think about you know. Um, you know things like uh, Atlassian or ResMed mm. uh, and, and things like that so so that's that um, in terms of what I think there is a general sense people the, the people compare markets and I think that sometimes leads to interesting thoughts you know people might say oh this market is cheaper than that market um, but again I think there's a whole heap of con- contextual information that's needed to make those uh, comparisons relevant. So, yeah. I don't know. That, that's sort of my uh, my thought. I mean, I mean, yeah. Uh, I don't have any other specific thoughts. Interesting. Thank you, mate. Um, I, my my my. You know what's kind of whenever you talk about something internationally, there's so much home. What we call home country bias, right? So, Australian investors focus here. International US investors focus there. And so what it's almost a bit of a, um, a stereotype, almost a caricature of the way we think of other companies or other countries, right? So when we think of Swiss, we think of clocks. When we think of America, we probably think of tech these days. And the old days, it might have been car companies or something. Uh, when Americans think about Australia, they invariably think about – or they, they think – if you only know a few things about something, you often know the, the, the kind of the biggest, most obvious things. So the, the Yanks think about us as – you know, banks and holes in the ground, right? Houses and holes, as they like to say. And so that's kind of, you know, they think about us that way. And I think that under, under, um, undervalues, underappreciates the rest of the economy, the rest of the market, the rest of the ASX. So if you're thinking about BHP, Rio, Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, that's kind of their their version of Australia, right? The ASX. Now, it makes some sense. We know as we, we said it on Friday, the um, Apple put on the value of one whole Commonwealth Bank in a day. So, it's, you know, to some degree, we are only 2% of the world market. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for investors overseas to really even kind of care or want to know that much about our market, as much as that feels a bit kind of, you know, painful to say as a proud Australian. Um, there's, there's only so much that's worth their time to know, given there are other bigger and more diversified markets, China, India, the UK, Europe. Um, you know, by the time you get to Australia, we're probably, I think we're number six or seven, mate, I think in terms of global stock market size from memory. Um, the Yanks are about 60% by themselves. And then you throw in the, the Poms and the Europeans, uh, Japan and China, I think we're probably somewhere under that. Uh, which makes us, you know, not, not we're, we're high up the list, 
but the list gets really small really quickly. So when the sixth or seventh biggest market is two percent, it gives you tells you exactly everything you need to know. So look, I think they do. You know, it, it's the caricatures, right? It's the crocodile Dundees, it's the outback, it's the kangaroos, and it's you know houses and holes. So I think if there is a if there is an opportunity for international investors um, investing in Australia, it's looking past that. Some of the other companies we have on our exchanges, um, even the ones that are listed already in the America in America are using um, the American depository receipts, for example, right? The, the banks are listed there. We don't necessarily think you should invest in them. Uh, Cochlears and Resmeds, the CSLs, um, there you know you can get plenty of those companies in in the US. And I think every in every country the investors have insufficient international exposure. Even the Yanks who have 60% of the market, of the global equity markets in their backyard, they're putting all of their money into 60% of the of the available opportunities. And to Doc's point, you should ideally, now there are currency and time of day and complexity issues, but you know, if you, in a perfect world, you would have the whole world as your investment universe and you should be trying to pick the best 15, 20, 25, 30 ideas from that entire universe of, of the globe. Most of us don't, including Australians, by the way, including Americans. Um, now, America has maybe less reason to, given they are at least 60%. So most of the world's markets are there. But they still miss that international opportunity. So I think there's there's opportunities there. But that's probably my my take on it. Um, they also don't appreciate our wines, Craig. As you said, there's plenty of great Australian whites and reds. Reds in particular, I'm a bit fan, fan of. So maybe American listeners, buy yourself some... Um, well, I own Treasury, so I'll, you know, buy some Penfolds, buy some Wins, buy some Lindemans. Do yourself a favour. It's good wine. And more on that, you like a no, you like a red wine, don't you? Well, you know, I have recently moved to white bubbles. You have? Oh, really? There you go. Yeah, I love the white. What are you bubble. drinking now? Well, you know, I was at the Hunter, yep. and I forgot the name now, but I've uh, I bought a bunch of things from nice the Hunter region, local local yeah. boutique wines. Very good. Okay, mostly bubblies. Actually, next time, remind me, I'll get you one. And, and uh, I should say, just to uh, support my, my, my locals, next time you're in the New South Southern Highlands, down you, next time you're down Barrel Way, a couple of good wineries down here too. Drop in and uh, try some. I'm sure they appreciate your custom. Well, particularly if you like, hey, travel, travel around Australia for a little bit. Dr. Reese is cancelling his Highland holiday. Travel around Australia. Put some more money back in the local economies. They've been struggling after the bushfires. You've done that actually, mate. You've been doing a bit of getting out the weekends. Well, yeah. We, we went uh, out to um, uh, to the Blue Mountains region one weekend. And there was a, some, uh, you know, a friend of ours was getting married uh, in Newcastle. So we, we took the opportunity to go to uh, the the Hunter region. And we actually had a really good time. I nice. did not realize this, but I would mention this to people who are listening. The Hunter region has some awesome, awesome restaurants where you get these set meals like okay. you know your four course or five course meals but i've had the last you know weekend i had some of the most fantastically tasty meals i've ever had in like in wow. a long long time so i'm actually thinking about going back again <laughs> there you go <laughs> just so to if eat if you're in the sydney area come down to barrel go out to the blue mountains or go up to newcastle spend some money in the uh hunter region, hunter hunter region. region. yeah exactly all righty let's <laughs> let's move on from that that's a Bit tangent of, we'll, we'll, we'll do a food and drink podcast another time maybe maybe that could be our next podcast what do you reckon? Yeah, wine, the food and regions drink. of Australia with Doc and Scott. Does that work for you? Yeah, that definitely works. Get on the road. Yeah. We'll get a full mobile, a full Tesla, I assume, I do something like that. All right. So next question is from Tommy. Uh, Tommy says, uh, Scott and Doc, first off, you're legends. Thank you, mate. Kind of you to say. Second, love the show. Listen to it every week. Love the banter between you. Good man. He says, I'm an Aussie living in America. 
I'm subscribed to both Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, so I full on on both sides of the Pacific with all my siblings and family members still living in Sydney. Excellent. Well, good day to Tommy's family if you're listening, and why wouldn't you be? Um, he says, anyways, I've been trying to help out my 65-year-old mum, trying to help her sort out some of her finances and retirement goals. She's talked to me about maybe taking on management of some of her inherited cash to grow it for her over the next 10 to 20 years. I have some ideas about creating a ComSec account for her and putting it into a mix of Vanguard funds and some Motley Fool Australia and US stock picks. Any additional wisdom would be appreciated. Tommy, there you go, mate. That's a pretty uh, That's a pretty broad. <laughs> now, we should always say, as we do all the time, but we'll just reiterate, we can never, ever give personal advice. So anything we say about any question we get is general advice only. We haven't taken anyone's circumstances into account. We are just giving our general opinion on stuff. Uh, please always consider whether it is right for you. With that disclaimer out of the way... Um, Pretty open question there from Tommy. So uh, someone might be 65, so in or near retirement. Let's assume it's, yeah, you know, year retirement. Um, wanting to grow up for the next 10 or 20 years to kind of provide an income and some capital gains. How would you go about managing someone else's retirement portfolio across Australia and the US? Well, um, I mean, it's a, you know, um, he said Tommy has already, you know, said that, you know, pick some stocks from the ASX and pick some stocks from the US. Um, and he has kindly said that he's going to use the full services, which we appreciate um, as well. I, I think that that's a, that's a good approach. I, I would, I, if I was doing this for myself, I would tilt a little towards, um, you know, sort of what I would call high quality growth companies. So these might be companies that pay small dividend today, but are still growing fast. Um, that's sort of you know, fast enough have, you know, but have established credentials. Those are the type of companies I would be looking to invest across both markets. Um, so not really trying to get the flyer there. Uh, but yeah, like, I mean, you know, if he's uh, everlasting income type of service is one example, uh, mm. even shared advisor and, you know, the stock advisor in the US, for example, is other places to look for ideas. Uh, that's sort of the take. Yeah, I would, I would stay away from from sort of smaller and higher growth companies at given the time frame and the constraints. Uh, but yeah, I'd still tilt towards essentially, uh, yeah, growth companies, but a little bit later stage growth companies. I like that, mate. Um, I'm going to take a different perspective. So like, I think, again, we can't tell you what you should do or your mum should do, Tommy. Um, it's, it's also worth thinking about the, the, the temperament of the person you're investing for if literally she's not going to think about it at all and let you do whatever you want to do, uh, that's one thing. Um, if she's going to be involved and kind of be worried about movements and share prices and stuff, that's a different thing entirely. Also a question about whether you are literally growing it just for the capital growth or whether you're trying to get income from it. So lots of different ways to think about that. So the first thing is think about the, the, the risk tolerance and more importantly, in this case, I think volatility tolerance of both yourself and your mum. Um, if you don't want to lose faith in you and, and frankly that cause family issues or lose faith in investing altogether. Um, so think about that. Think about the income versus growth requirements over that 10 to 20 year period. Um, is it literally, you, you say to grow up for over the next 10 to 20 years, if that's if that's literally all you're doing with it, i.e. just growing the capital base, then you're back to Doc's point, you're back to investing in the best companies you can find because over 20 years is a, is a fantastically long time period to think about volatility. If, if you're worried about, you know, we won't talk about coronavirus in three years, let alone 20 is my view. Um, so, you know, to some degree, just simply finding the best, the, the best, you know, opportunities you can for that dot money regardless is always the best idea. Um, start there. In terms of um, US and Australia, the only other thing I would sort of think about for you again being in the, in the States, but your mum being here at home, is 
at some level, she's going to potentially and almost certainly get value from Frankie Credits, which may well exceed um, you know, the value of a, of a capital gain of the same amount, given that she might well be inside super maybe or at least outside super but in a very low tax bracket. Um, the Frankie Credits are worth real money and significant money for those people. So again, you may find that, again, depending on when you need income when you don't, um, the ability to take advantage of that tax refund every year from the ATO may well be worth thank, having to think about the way you position that strategy. So that's, I haven't really answered your question directly, Tommy, but between Doc and I, hopefully some different thoughts and some, some worthwhile different options. Doc, any more on that one? No, actually. Very good. Mate, next one is from Chris. Chris is g'day, Scott and Doc. Big thank you for helping in, my, in keeping my investing anxiety under control. Mate, you're very welcome. It's been, a t- it's been a tough few weeks. Well done for sticking with it. As soon as the market went down, I jumped to your most recent podcast as I was a bit behind and it really helped to get things into perspective. I've started looking at opportunities to buy. I'm a member of both SA and EO and I'd like to ask you both about Webjet and corporate travel management. Is it a good time to buy? Also, what are the main differences between these two companies and which one could be a better buy at the moment? Also, Scott, it would be great if you could add Best Buys now to your US recommendations. Appreciate your work and great podcast. Chris. All right, mate. So um, we, we, we have plenty of uh, disclaimers to offer. Webjet's recommendation of yours at EO, Extreme Opportunities. Um, Webjet and Corporate Travel Management are both share advisor recommendations and I own both stocks. So with that tangled web of, <laughs> of best interests, um, just your, let's start with what's different about Webjet and Corporate Travel Management. Yeah, so uh, I guess the biggest difference is um, corporate travel is essentially focused on the corporate travel world. Right, Webjet is um, you know serving the OTA market here. So when when I say you know it's an overseas, uh, over the top, you know, an o- online travel agent, basically yep. a travel agent on 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 f- for retail uh, people like us. So that's one of the biggest differences there. Yep. Um, so that you know they put that puts you in different buckets altogether. Um, now, in terms of in terms of whether or not to buy uh, Webjet, well, Webjet we have it on buy. It, the stock is down significantly. I'll not say significantly, but maybe I haven't checked, but maybe probably 20 percent plus from what we thought was a good price at that time. Um, I'd say this: if you own the stock, continue holding. I think it 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 looks really cheap at current prices. Um, if you don't own enough of what you thought you wanted to own of it, then feel free to buy more um, to bring it up to your allocation or whatever you think is your allocation, that's up to you to decide. In terms of, is it a back the truck type of moment? I don't think so because right. uh, the reason I don't think it's a back the truck type of moment is travel stocks are going to be in the pain, feeling the pain for some time uh, and it's not yet clear how long that time is mm. and uh, you know, the markets don't immediately react to uh, positive information, positive news. You know, we, we are still in this coronavirus thing. Um, it's not yet clear whether there's going to be a vaccine, how long this is going to continue, how long people are going to be deferring their travels. And that's going to have a sentiment effect. It's going to have a definite effect on earnings in the near term. Now that, you know, in theory is only worth 10%, maybe 15% of the valuation. So, you know, bear, bear in mind that. But 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 still, I think, you know, mm. volatility 
is going to be there. <laughs> in other words, if the stock is going to go down, you know, 5% one day, go up yeah. 5% the other day. And that's just not a very pleasant experience for most people. If you can handle it, well, and you can think forward, great. If you can do that, then then definitely just, you know, you can buy your allocation and just forget about it. It's a great company. Um, it could be an awfully tough ride. It's going to be a tough ride. It's, it's, it's going to be a tough ride. <laughs> but, but it, it, you know, when you look back, if you can, if you can, you know, if you can look forward five years, and you, when you look back five years from now, you look back and say, oh, it was a great time to buy, right? And yeah. whether you're buying at, it's now probably around $9, whether you're buying at $9 or $7 or, you know, $12, if it's like a $30 stock at that time, right? you know, yes, there is a difference in returns, but really it's still a huge multi-bagger at that point, right? So and that's the way to think about it. But yeah. you, you remember about the volatility, I, I think um, is, remembering about the volatilities I think is important. So that's how I look at it. Uh, I wouldn't comment on, 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 on corporate travel. That's uh, that's a recommendation on uh, uh, shared vessel that, and, and Scott owns it. So Scott, and Scott is much more qualified to talk about that. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I actually own both. So I, I, and I, I bought both uh, last week. So I think I heard it on Friday. Um, so that, that probably answers your question, Chris, in absolute concrete terms. Um, I was happy to, I had more cash in my investment accounts than I wanted to have. Um, I was asked about a recent platinum event, how much cash I had in my portfolio. My answer was more than I wanted to, more than I should. Um, so I took the opportunity when share prices fell, not again, as we said on Friday, because they fell per se, but because I thought there were opportunities there that were more attractive to me to have bought shares than hold cash. Um, and frankly, after the RBA decision this week, I feel even better about that decision. Um, look, so, I mean, they, these are very, very, very different businesses. They operate in the same area. Um, they have almost no overlap whatsoever. Corporate travel is a tiny bit of leisure. Webjet does a tiny bit of business. Um, but effectively, corporate travel is a business, a global business, uh, travel booking business. Webjet is a combination of an Australian retail travel agent and a global, mostly European, um, aggregator of beds, hotel beds uh, that they then uh, basically provide to other aggregators who are looking to uh, sell you a holiday. So, you know, almost no overlap. Ironically, despite the fact they're in the same, they're in the same business and based in the same country, um, the overlap is is relatively small. Look, I think um, right now it's hard to know who's going to have the better or worse short to medium term. Uh, performance. Uh, now, I don't really care. I mean, I'd, I'd be happy if they all went up and never went down, but, um, you know, I don't know which one is going to do better or worse from in the short term. I think Webjet's growth trajectory um, seems more solid, albeit they're both going to take a big break um, in the next couple of months, but over time, the Webbeds business is going really, really well. Now, it's growing from a small base, and so at some point, it does get to a size where that growth has to slow because it gets to a decent size. If it's get, it gets to that size, then great. That's a first-class problem to have if you're already saturating a market such that there's not enough growth left where you've probably got up multiples in the meantime. Uh, that being said, corporate travel is also doing a reasonably good job of growing. Uh, not so great in the last half, but over time has been able to grow at um, you know, organic growth and, and acquired growth, roughly the same rates, kind of 10-ish percent a year each, added together about 20% overall. That's been a pretty successful strategy for corporate travel. Now, lower share prices do make acquisitions harder. And so to some degree, that may slow that growth. Um, Overall, I think I probably would put more chips on Webjet than corporate travel at the current price in the current environment, um, mostly because Webjet's doing, just doing so well. Uh, again, coronavirus aside, the operational success of that business just seems to be very, very strong, very, very impressive. So you know, that alone probably gives it, gives it preference. I bought both, as I said last week. I'm happy to, happy to own uh, small amounts of both. Uh, corporate travel is a larger proportion of my portfolio because I've owned it longer and the original holding I've had for seven years, I suppose. Um, so you know, I, it's just it's larger by definition. I bought more of Webjet 
last week. But again, that's probably because I already had some corporate travel. So hard to hard to draw a straight line through it. I think given you know a dozen chips to put somewhere, I'd probably put an extra couple on, on Webjet and a couple less on corporate travel. Do you have any more thoughts? Anything I covered or didn't cover? No. Um, nothing really. Very good. Mate, I reckon this might be the last one. The good thing is it's a four-part question. So it's from Paul... Paul throws a couple of hashtags at the end, mate, so stay tuned for those. He says, Hi, Scott and Doc. Firstly, I'd like to say I'm very grateful to you both for the enlightening podcast. Thank you for both sharing your wisdom and providing a light and entertaining way to learn about investing. I'm recommending it to as many friends as I can tell. Good man, Paul. Thank you. We very much appreciate it. He says, I'm 33, fairly new to investing, with a reasonable appetite for risk. My aim is for high growth as possible, given I'm starting a little late. Mate, 33 is not late, just quietly. Um, give yourself an uppercut. I'm interested in your thoughts on margin loans. My friend, who was a stockbroker years ago, highly recommends getting a margin loan if I have an appetite for risk, as I could significantly increase my capital invested and my potential gains. I'm aware it can magnify gain, uh, losses as well as gains. However, I can feel I can mitigate the risks mainly by one, using conditional sells, two, keeping a reasonable buffer of cash in case I get a margin call, Three, not maxing out the loan, e.g. not taking 80% of the available margin. And four, diversifying my portfolio across ASX high growth stocks and significant part in technology and internationally exposed ETFs such as the NASDAQ and the Asian ETF. Comsec offer approximately 6.15% as a variable, a little more fixed. I feel this is more than beatable unless there is a global crash. Now, I will say this question came through a couple of weeks ago. Uh, even then, I imagine I could mitigate against the risk too with, above, with the above strategy. I'm interested in your general thoughts on the strategy and whether you think margin loans are worth the risk early on in an investment journey. Thanks again, Paul. And Paul finishes with hashtag get doc on Insta and hashtag get Scott a Tesla. So uh, we'll leave the, leave the hashtags there, although I will say I'm a big fan of the get doc on, on Insta hashtag. And if anyone wants to give me a Tesla, I'm... Absolutely happy to take it. I'll even do a sponsorship deal. So, Elon, if you're listening, let me know. Happy to have a chat, mate. I'm happy to uh, yeah, put, you know, I'll say nice things. I promise. All right, mate. Let's, uh, let's get back to the questions at hand. Margin loans. Paul makes a good case. And look, there's ways you can mitigate the risk. Surely at 33, it's worth taking a risk, isn't it? Here's a, okay. I have a view on margin loans. And my view is that essentially any debt that is callable at short order is a risk not worth taking. Basically, if if somebody allowed you the loan with no risk, <laughs> then they're, they're going to let you ride it through the volatility and up and down, uh, then you're fine. But if they can sell your shares or if they have any other form of collateral, then I'm really worried about it. Um, it's not worth it because largely because, again, there's nothing – I mean, the market is – probably not going to crash by 30%, but there's nothing that says that the market couldn't drop by 30% one day. Mm. And if it did drop by 30% that one day, you could pretty much be wiped out yep. if you have a margin loan. And yes, at 33, you have a time advantage to your side, but would you really want to be wiped out and then start again? Or rather, would you, given that you're 33, if, if someone is 33, they have so many years of compounding ahead of them that the slow and steady, this is really a case of slow and steady is going to win the race. And and one of the things, this is, this is important, I, I tell everyone this, in the beginning, it seems like you're not making enough money. In the, then after some years, it still seems like you're not making enough money. <laughs> but then yep. if you do this for 10, 15, 20 years, at that point, then it seems the other way around because when the market goes down or, you know, if your account drops by 5%, you, you feel like you actually lost a lot of money because 
compounding has actually done its magic by then. Right. Right. So I think you need to let compounding. So this, this is again my own personal view, uh, and and I have a feeling Scott might agree with most of it. Is you really need compounding to do its magic. Let compounding work it its way. Thirty years is a long time. If you double your money, even every six years, you're going to get five, essentially five periods yep. <laughs> of doubling. That's exactly. humongous. Exactly. Yep. Uh, when you know, so for somebody at 33, at 65, and and you know, these days, an in, in average Australian is probably going to live until like 90. And if somebody mm-hmm. who's actually 33, probably or 35, is going to probably live till God knows 100, right? <laughs> so you, you know, you have many years of compounding. We're just jealous. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just the slow and steady is the better way yep. instead of. Uh, in a way that might result in a crash and burn. Yeah, Paul, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast and I'm going to agree completely with Doc and say, what the hell are you thinking? Um, Your stockbroker, mate, I'm sure is a lovely bloke. I'm sure he has the best of intentions for you. Um, There's a couple of things. First thing I'd say is Warren Buffett has said famously, leverage is the only way a smart guy can go broke. You sound like a smart guy. Um, why would you take the risk? Here's the other thing. I wrote an email yesterday, so I'm going to just pull it up, not to quote myself, but just because I've already done the numbers, so it's easier for me to read them out. Um, I'm going to I'm going to say here's something that I let's go with this. Um, I wrote uh, let's go. Uh, if you get 10 percent, so doctor said every six years, I'll go with seven because so the rule of 72. If you earn 10 percent a year, your money doubles about every seven years, roughly speaking. Okay, so 50 grand after seven years becomes 100. Another seven years becomes two hundred thousand, then four hundred thousand, then eight hundred thousand dollars. That's fifty to eight hundred in twenty-eight years. Do the maths, mate. You'll be sixty-one. Not a single dollar of leverage. Not a single risk from a margin loan. That is absolutely not guaranteed. But you, there is no chance of that being taken away from you by the bank, as Doc says, calling that in. Now, I also did some maths. What if you started with fifty grand? You added another five grand a year every year on top of that. Well, you're 50 after seven years. doesn't just double to 100000 It becomes $145,000. After another seven years, instead of doubling from 100 to 200, it goes from 145 to 329000 then 690 grand, then $1.39 million. 50 grand plus five grand a year, 1.4 million bucks. Now, let's say that's the most likely scenario, right? I Now, market might return... 8%, 9% rather than 10. We don't know what the future will bring. Let's just let's just say that's the most likely scenario. You would be jeopardizing the ability of turning 50 grand into 1.4 million by taking extra risk. How badly do you want to get more than 1.4 million to jeopardize the 1.4 in the first place? Like at some point, you've got to say to yourself, would I like to have 2 million? Absolutely. But if the choice is 1.4 or 1.4, in other words, if you, again, nothing's guaranteed, right? So I can't, I really want to be very clear and not guaranteeing anything. But if you could get 1.4 just by doing the slow and steady job, or you could you could leverage it and get somewhere between zero and two, why would you take the risk? Why would you jeopardize 1.4 for the chance of getting a little bit more? Um, I can't, sorry, it's not the Buffett one, but he talks about you know the people using leverage. He said they, they, they risked what they had and needed for what they didn't have and didn't need. And again, in that sort of scenario, if you can turn 50 into 1.4 by adding five grand a year, it's just, it, it, it's a no-brainer. So look, could you, could you use conditional sales? Yeah, you could, but if you if the market fell 10%, well, that's gonna wipe out a heap of your capital because you've already borrowed, say, half of it. So that's a, a equivalent of a 20% loss on a conditional sell, in other words, a, a stop loss order or something. So you're losing 20% to start with. Then when are you getting back in the market? You're getting back in the next day? Well, the market falls another 10%. Guess what? You lost another 20% of your capital. 
if you don't get back in, the market goes up 10%, well, you've lost the opportunity to make that money back. So trading sounds smart. You know, it's funny, this industry is a really funny industry. The longer people are in it, the, the smarter they think they get, and the more complex they want to be, the cleverer they want to be. Um, I don't know of any clever, in air quote, strategy that's better than a simple long-term compounding strategy. Like, I, just, I just don't, right? There's no, there's no, <laughs> you can be as clever as you want. Guess who makes money when you're clever? Well, the stockbroker does because they get the commissions. Not your mate, I'm not saying your mate. I'm sure he's doing the right thing and trying to look after you. Um, but, you know, if you're buying and selling, buying and selling, stop loss order here, margin loan there, that's tough. The other thing, by the way, if you get, let's say the market returns 8% rather than 10, if you're paying 6.15 with Comsec, you're only netting 1.85%. Now, that's on a larger base, granted, but even if you double the amount of investment dollars you can put to work, what's that round up to, 4%? You're still actually behind on the deal than if you just use your own money and worked it up from there. So, look, I, I get the, I seriously get the appeal. Um, I, you know, there are some people who have used marginal loans and made a fortune. Uh, you're not old enough, mate, but trust me, in 1987, stockbrokers were jumping out of buildings. Um, I don't say that flippantly. That That's a pretty serious deal, right? Like people literally killed themselves uh, because they couldn't take the impacts or the, the results of what they'd done in good faith for the right reasons, thinking they had this stuff under control. I promise you it is just not worth it. You're 33. You've got another, I use 28 years for that quick example. If I had another seven years to it, by the way, that 1.4 becomes 2.8 million and that takes you to what that's 35 takes you to 68 so if you can work to 68 you're going to have and you only put 50 grand in you only add five grand a year that's 2.8 million bucks in the kick again if you're doing absolutely nothing add more money to that save harder than that get a better return than that i, I just I, I can't imagine any circumstance where it's worth jeopardizing two million bucks for the off chance you might get a little bit more and for the off chance you might get a heap less possibly as low as zero that's a bit of a media rant, Doc, sorry. Oh, no, I, I think that's, that's, that, that's, I think, very prudent advice. Yeah, like save regularly, invest regularly, and just, you know, just let it grow. Pretty easy, right? Mate, I'm going to ask one more because I can and because uh, we are running out of time, but it was a really good little very simple question we got from Howie uh, Davis, his name, during the week. And I just like, this is a really simple, quick one. And it's just one of those kind of, we talk a lot about the theory of investing and a lot of kind of big macro-y topics or, or big you know, meaty topics, which I love doing. This is a really simple one. He says, hey guys, if you only had 500 bucks each time to invest, would you do so and pay 3% brokerage or just save up $1,000 and invest in one go half as frequently? Yeah, I actually detest paying extra brokerage. <laughs> you do. Uh, so I have been calling on Australian brokers to to follow the American lead. So I'm telling, I'm talking to Comsec here. Just make brokerage. Come on, if, if you don't, cannot make it $0, at least make it $1. Um, make brokerage great again. Yeah, make brokerage great again. Make it the greatest possible by reducing the fees to zero. So now with that, that request oh, that's over, awesome. uh, look, I, I, I would detest paying uh, $20 each time to any broker. So I would actually bundle. If I had, if I was going to invest in a 500 was all I was saving, I would actually bundle up to like 2000 and then invest um but yeah maybe i could live with 1500 but i would so not be paying 20 dollars times four um to the broker yeah i kind of agree look the only thing i would say it kind of depends on how, how much you can actually put in over a course of a year right like if you're out of the market for a year trying to save you a thousand bucks and the market goes up 10 percent, then you've 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 saved yourself you know Three percent, but you've cost yourself ten percent by waiting. So, at some level, I, it kind of there's just some rough back the envelope maths. If you are investing less than quarterly, I'd probably, I think, I, I think I would probably, do, I'd probably invest quarterly at least. I think yeah, it's quarter, what I quarter, do, right? quarterly, I think is a good cadence. I, I'd pay up a little bit 
in brokerage if I had to in terms of percentages to invest quarterly rather than waiting for every four or six months to add that money up. Now, if you're saving 500 bucks a week, then waiting a fortnight is a no-brainer. So, yeah. you know, definitely pile it up. I will say again, I, I'm talking about Comsec a lot and I don't actually do it for any other reason than I just happen to like them and they're, they're pretty good. Um, they've, they've actually got a $10 trade for under a thousand bucks at the moment. So if you're buying 990 bucks worth of shares at a go, you're only paying 10 bucks. That's that's effectively 1% give or take. That's a pretty good deal. Now, you know, you sound like you're with NabTrade. You say you're with NabTrade. Um, if you love it, that's fine. Go with it. But if you can do, you know, you're saying 500 bucks for 3%. If I could save up, you know, $1,000, $990 and pay 1%, I think I'd do that instead. So I'd probably split the difference. I would go 1000 bucks. If you can if you can get 1000 bucks in less than three months, then I would I would wait and do it in $1,000 lots and I'd do it with someone like a Comsec when you can pay 10 bucks. Um, if you're going above that, I mean, look, you know, 50 bucks is going to kill you. Um, but there, there's probably, if you are going to invest in that sort of cadence, there are ways that just don't cost you anything other than some paperwork to change brokers that may actually save you a few bucks. I would still not pay them extra money. I, I so detest paying extra money. I just I just find the idea that I have to pay extra to someone for actually not doing anything extra deplorable. So therefore, I would not pay them. But, but yeah, but Scott makes the practical point. So you can follow his practical advice. Uh, and if, you, if you're like me, then you can in a roar and you can complain about it. I love the passion. Now, if you are a passionate investor and you want to join Doc, not only in his rants, but also in his investing, you can join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. For our podcast listeners, there's a very special link you can go to and get a special price. It's fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Doc is doing a wonderful job beating the market with Kevin Gandia, who he works with. Um, if you if you like a bit of passion in your investing, both a bit of risk, a bit of a bit of you know, um, yeah, just some 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 passion, some some real you know, I always say aggression, but someone who, who knows what they want and is afraid to get it. Uh, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. If you're a bit more relaxed and chilled out like me, you don't mind paying ten bucks a trade. Go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. That's right, this is a double ad. You can join Share Advisor for also a very good price. You know what they should do, Doc? They should join both, shouldn't they? Absolutely. Why would you not? I don't know of any good reason. So fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. If you can't remember, SA is Share Advisor, EO is Extreme Opportunities, and it's exactly the same format for the URL. So fool.com.au, insert service, podcast, SA podcast or EO podcast. Come and join our services. We're both bidding the market. We both try and do our level best to inform, to educate and to enrich and have a bit of fun along the way as we do with this podcast. So if you want to get ahead with your investing, have a look at those two services. I think we're done, mate. That was a fun mailbag. That was a great one. I enjoyed that. Oh, it was fantastic. You're just saying that because you want me to buy your lunch, aren't you? Uh, yeah, it's almost time. Okay. That wraps us up then. But before we go and get some lunch, don't forget you can subscribe to the AAA Motley Fool Money podcast, and you should, through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Throw us some stars. Leave us a review. Say some nice things to us. Say some nice things to your friends. Get us more listeners and get them on the straight and narrow Keys to financial freedom, I like to think. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.